0: Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. This is Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. In this episode, we speak with Paola Piscitele, who is the President of the Community of Sant'Egidio, USA. In order to provide a solution to the many victims and the risks run by migrants crossing the Mediterranean, the Santa Sant'Egidio Community and the Federation of Evangelical Churches in Italy signed an agreement on December 16, 2015 with the Interior and Foreign Ministries to open humanitarian corridors. This would allow a 1,000 refugees in vulnerable conditions, currently in Lebanon, to travel to Italy over a two-year period with visas issued for humanitarian reasons, a procedure already in European law. Pope Francis has supported and encouraged this initiative. During his Angelus on March 6, 2016, the Holy Father stated, As a concrete sign of commitment to peace and life, I want to mention and express admiration for humanitarian corridors in favor of refugees, launched recently in Italy. This pilot project, which combines solidarity and security, allows one to help people fleeing war and violence as the hundred refugees who have already been transferred to Italy, including sick children, disabled people, war widows with children, and the elderly. I also welcome this initiative because it is an ecumenical one, supported by the community of Sant'Egidio, the Italian Federation of Evangelical Churches, and the Waldensian and Methodist Churches. Thank you, Paola, for joining us. To begin our conversation, could you please introduce yourself and discuss your work with the community of Sant'Egidio?
1: Um, my name is Paola Piscitelli. I met the community kind of 40 years ago, or maybe a little more, when I was in high school in uh, Rome in Italy. And Rome, Italy, is the place where the community started in 1968, so we are going rapidly, actually in February, towards our 50th anniversary. And uh, um, at the moment, I came to New York 25 years ago, where... I live now and I coordinate um, the activities and the programs of the community in the United States.
0: Can you describe the community of Santa Sant'Egidio, including its historical origins?
1: Yes. So the community started, as I said, in 1968 from a group of high school students. They were just high school students in a public school of Rome. They were not connected to any particular church. And there was this uh, young man, 18 years old, Andrea Riccardi, who is actually the founder of the community, who gathered some friends, some classmates or other friends of the same age, around the idea that uh, the gospel and scripture could change our life and could change the world. It was a time of unrest um, the 60s all over the world, but also in Italy. It was the time after the Second Vatican Council. So there was a lot of soul-searching, and Andrea chose this very simple path that was, you know, the gospel is presenting a way of living and a way of living that is changing the reality of things, the way Jesus did one by one. So he started from this small group. Now it's uh, 60,000 people of uh, of every age in 73 countries of the world uh, acting in very different projects, as I said, from from children to... Elderly, and so on.
0: Could you also discuss the development of the community's mission and role in society?
1: So, from that very first intuition and that very first gathering, in which the theme was actually loneliness, which is very interesting for our world today because we are facing it even more, uh, this little group started uh, and started gathering together around um, scripture, so in prayer and immediately from the very beginning serving the poor. It's very important for the community of Sant'Egidio Egidio because these two aspects, the prayer and the poor, cannot be disconnected. You know, we are part really of our intuition, spiritual intuition. We say that we cannot be Christian if you don't meet the poor. And actually has been particularly good lately with uh, you know, Pope Francis because he has encouraged us to meet and to meet personally these other brothers and sisters of ours. An important aspect also that has developed, I would say from the late 80s uh, till uh, till now, is also the aspect of peacemaking. That was not in our first intuition, was not that we were peacemakers or conflict resolution trained. We're just people who wanted to, to help and to change the situation of those who lived in worse situation. But then um, we got involved in Mozambique and actually from... 89 to 92, the mediation for the civil war that was then in Mozambique were held in Sant'Egidio in Rome. And the founder of the community, Andrea Riccardi, and Don Matteo Zuppi were two of the four mediators of this mediation. And so that brought a whole new commitment and involvement of the community in the peace process in the world. Actually, Mozambique, it's the only, I guess, peace agreement signed with the facilitation the only facilitation of an NGO, and it was signed on October 4, 1992. And the peace has held so far. So it's more than 25 years, and we are also very happy for that.
0: How did the community transform its mission into action?
1: So the community started simply without any structure, without any building, without nothing. It was just a group of friends praying together, and at the beginning, uh, helping the children in the poor periphery in the slums of Rome at that time. There were still slums in Rome. And through that personal encounter, uh, we discovered many aspects of poverty. First of all, close by in Rome, we discover the reality of the elderly at home, we discovered the reality of the people with disabilities who were hidden. Uh, and so we, we started to to try to respond. Also in this, the community is not uh, really uh, an organization or an institution because it uh, tries to respond to the needs that come to our life. So also it's a personal challenge, it's a challenge uh, for the community to be always open eyes and open-hearted to discover what are the needs around us and how to respond. That's why, you know, it doesn't have a specific uh, field. So the (laughs) refugees, for example, is just one of the things that we respond to, but we are very involved in the campaign against the death penalty. We are very involved with the children, with the elderly, with the people who live in the streets. So really it depends where we live and where the community is to look around uh, in a gospel language would be raise your eyes, lift up your eyes and look around and the harvest is ripe. And so do something.
0: Could you chronicle when the community's humanitarian work began with refugees? Did such service begin with the Humanitarian Corridor Initiative, or was the community's relationship with refugees established at an earlier time?
1: Yeah, the Humanitarian Corridors came later. That was more the commitment for peace. Humanitarian Corridors is a development of the latest, I would say from 2015, I guess uh, was signed the agreement doesn't mean that our friendship and our commitment with the refugees started then. That started much earlier in Italy in uh, probably the beginning of the 80s I would say because it was also a new phenomenon for Italy. Italy was before a country of immigrants uh, plenty of them here in the United States but also all over the world was a poor country. But then at the beginning of the 80s because the situation changed it becomes to be a country of welcome where people were coming. And at the beginning, one of the first things that we did was a school of Italian language just to help them integrate and welcome. And I remember actually I was doing it when I was in Rome myself and it was a great opening again, a great door on the world, it's like discovering different people, different stories, the harshness of life, the uh, the difficulties that they have to go through, the challenge of resettling in a new country. So it was the first opening, but also you know knowing people of other religions of other culture, starting to celebrate other festivities, respecting the religion, starting a friendship, because we really do think that friendship also with immigrants and refugee is one of the biggest challenges that we have. And it's the most, one of the most important thing because it's also the separation and the isolation in which sometimes refugees and immigrants live. It's also the source of many other problems.
0: Could you also explain why the community decided to get involved?
1: So given this background and this sensitivity, this openness also to the world of the refugees, then in the last five, six years, as everyone knows because of the new media and so on, this phenomenon has reached really larger dimensions and tragic dimensions. We have seen a lot of that in the Mediterranean Sea of people seeking a new future, seeking a better life and unfortunately being the victims of um, traffickers, of people without any sense of humanity, uh, exploiters, uh, abusers of women and every kind of uh, disgrace and traffic I mean, the image of the little island on the shores of the seas under the eyes of everyone. So again, in a way, for the intuition that I said at the beginning, that as a community we we ask ourselves, okay, so there is this problem. What can we do? So what can we do was the question in front of this. Tragedy in front of this new tragedy, I would say. And so we started to think and started to creatively think how we could help. And here comes the idea of the humanitarian corridors, which took advantage of a loophole or an opening in the European legislation that allowed visa for humanitarian reasons. And so what we thought and what these humanitarian corridors do is to provide a visa in the refugee camps for some people on a humanitarian ground, and then allow them to come to Italy in a safe way and being welcomed and integrated in society. So this was the idea, first of all, to respond to this tragedy of these many dead of people, you know, in the Mediterranean. And so to respond to that, to offer a safe way to travel and to help them resettle.
0: So we've been speaking about the Humanitarian Corridors Initiative. Could you explain what the term humanitarian corridors mean?
1: So humanitarian corridors, I think it has two components, right? One is humanitarian, one is corridors. Corridors usually are a safe way where people can walk. Even in a territory of war, usually you have a corridor, or you may hopefully have a corridor, that allows uh, supplies, aids to arrive. So the corridor is like a safe way. So that's one idea. And humanitarian, because it's a corridor that is given and is allowed on a humanitarian ground. That means the need, the weakness, the illness, the vulnerability of some categories of people, being children, being uh, people who are sick, And being also women that are more subject to the exploitation and the abuse and the violence of the traffickers. There was a last episode, I think, at the beginning of the month in Italy. Again, uh, a certain number of women find dead on a ship. Only women. 30 maybe or more than that. And there were also men on that ship, but only the women were killed. So... You wonder why. And so, you know, women, for example, in particular, are subject to more violence and abuse. So that's also fall into the category of humanitarian help.
0: That being said, could you describe the Humanitarian Corridor Initiative and how it came about?
1: Yes, so the Humanitarian Corridor is a pilot project. that was uh, it's, it's meant to be a pilot project in the sense that it's a small project because the first one that was written and was approved was for 1,000 immigrants. So obviously a small number in comparison to the millions that are moving around the world. But still, it planned to be also a way to offer, a way out nations could deal with this problem. So what it does, it identifies the people in the refugee camps and the identification is done both by the agency that facilitates the travel and by the UNHCR. So they are already, in a way, in the first application or in the first process of the refugee recognition, but they are not already established, otherwise it would be I think that this project came about because of the way how the community is present or tries to be present in the world. That means being open to read the signs of the time. Uh, that was a message of the Second Vatican Council that church was invited to read the signs of the times and so to understand where is the need and how we can respond. So what we try to be is not to be paralyzed in one program or in one institution, but just to be open in looking at what is needed and try to respond, knowing that each of us in different ways but are always questioned by the reality around us. So at the very beginning of our experience was a very important parable in scripture that is the parable of the Good Samaritan in which the Levite and the priest passed by a half-dead man. So you can wonder, how did it happen? They were religious people. But I think sometimes the risk for religious people is exactly that, to feel that we are already doing something, we are already doing our part, and so we become almost indifferent to to some other new aspect or new need or new question that come to us. So I think that the good thing about this program is really being able to respond to one one of the needs of the last hour, of the last time, our time. And so I think in that sense it's an invitation also always to be open and alert and open heart to, to respond to the reality around us.
0: The process behind the Humanitarian Corridors Project must be quite extensive. Can you begin by explaining what it entails exactly, particularly regarding the process of selecting appropriate candidates and the specific eligibility criteria? In other words, how do refugees qualify to participate or how do they get chosen?
1: There is a list already, you know, uh, in the camp. These are refugee camps that are organized by the... High Commissioner of the Refugees. So there is already a criterion and a list. And then we go through the list, we go through the people, and then we see them. The agencies, you know, the the sponsor decide who they are. I say also personally because I receive also many requests here in the United States, even if there is no humanitarian corridors, because people, you know, by word of mouth, they know that there is Santigidio doing this. So they see Santigidio USA and they think that we can help. Unfortunately, as you well know, in the United States for now, we are far from that usually both ways there are the list of the high commissioner from the refugees and then there is the also some people who ask and are mentioned to us and so then we we make a list so once they are identified in the camp there is a list that is written and it's presented to the minister of interior and to the minister of foreign affairs in italy that has to approve it so that also the background checks and everything of security and safety is done. And then it's brought back to the local Italian embassy, in this case in Lebanon, that they can issue the visas and then the people are put on a flight and then they are welcomed in Italy. And also the welcome is done in a very personal way, in the sense that, for example, the first 1,000 people arrived in In groups, Uh, I think there were 200 and then 200 and then, you know, another group, mostly minors. The minors were the most uh, numerous, so there were 37.5 children under 10, 22.5 young people between 18 and 30, and of the total, 52% were women. And so in that sense, you can see also uh, how the people were more vulnerable. I mean, that the categories of people also were chosen could benefit also this program. are really have to fall into the category of vulnerability. So there are women, children, people with illness, uh, very old people also that are in danger in the camp, because this is also the deal with the humanitarian visa. It's humanitarian in the sense that it's as an appeal on the human weakness and uh, it's directed to the people who are more in danger and weak in the camp, so that they are less resource of their own.
0: Hey, thanks, Paula. Could you also describe what welcome and reception of these refugees in the host countries looks like?
1: I'm sorry that being on a radio, you cannot see the smiles and the pictures and the big celebration that there is when they arrive at the airport, because it's really joyful. And it's so different from so many other images of refugees that you see, you know, pushing and in the lines or held are here in the United States at the airport. These people are welcome. So there are usually representation of these three sponsors, the Community of Sant'Egidio, the Federation of the Evangelical Churches and the Waldensian Dancing Table, which is another project. The Protestant Church from Italy. There has been often the president of the community of Sant'Egidio There have been representative also of the Italian government to welcome them. And there is, you know, big banners of welcome and uh, <laughs> clapping of hands. And really it's a joyful moment. From them they are already assigned to the different sponsor and brought in address to the families or to the places where they have to be. So some of them, because of the transportation, obviously the plane arrive in Rome, which is the main airport, but then they are eventually brought by bus or by train or directly to their place of destination. So it's a very direct welcome and once they arrive in the place of welcome, they do the regular path of all the refugees. So they have to present to the local authorities of security so that they can start the regular application for refugees because this is like a, it's a visa that allowed them to enter but it's not per se their refugees recognition. So they have to apply for the, it's like the first stage of that process so they have to apply so but to do it faster and smoother so in the first month that they arrive the agency take care of that the sponsor take care of that and they do it all together they are you know provided a job they are Taught Italian, so they are inserted in the school. The children are immediately registered at school, so all this is done very quickly. Uh, and because of the small numbers and uh, this uh, personal, individual attention to each case, so it's not the mass. You don't have to deal with a large group that makes things always more difficult. But you have each situation is dealt personally. So that I think it's one of the keys of the success of this project, together with the fact that it's free. And that has allowed to. Work for the settlement of the refugees in Italy in a very personal way, in the sense that these agencies provided places where these families or individuals could be placed. So where our, our guests were not put in another camp or in another container, but they were directly put in a village, in a town. So they were not all in Rome. They were scattered around Italy, usually one or two families per place, where there was a centre that was helping to welcome one family, another parish who would take care of other two families. So they welcome was very personal. And that I think it's also one of the reasons of the success, because we are not speaking about masses of people being, can you say, flooded in one place with the difficulties also of the welcoming place to absorb them. But it's really something tailored on the family and on the person. This is all done by the agency who run the project and they take charge also economically of everything. So this is very important because this doesn't cost anything to the government, radically.
0: Previously you mentioned that many of the refugees are young people or minors. Do they come with their family or are they unaccompanied?
1: The the minors are coming with families. There are many of them who were sick, you know, in need of medical care. Again, that was one of the criteria to choose the families. It's also bad because in a way you have to choose the the cases and it's always a difficult problem because how do you choose and uh, it's not easy but priority was given for example there was a, a little girl who needed operation to her eyes because she had a cancer there are others who were disabled with uh, different kind of disability so for them the life and the long wait in the camps was really affecting their future and the perspective of getting better or even of healing so um, that was one of the criteria and we try also to to preserve that to keep the families together because it it's meaningful because you need that support. And one of the tragedies of this whole phenomenon is the separation. Sometimes you receive this letter: "I have my mother here, my father there. You know, my sister is in another place, and so it's uh, you are completely then left alone, difficult to contact. Another thing that we provide, for example, when they arrives, uh, a telephone, a telephone number with the data, with the Wi-Fi, because so that they can be in touch with the rest of the families. You know, we try to be attentive even to the smaller needs that, in fact are essential for their life. Being in contact with your family is not an extra. It's not a luxury item. It's something that really makes your life uh, possible, livable, balanced, (laughs) and uh, happier, which prevents a lot of other problems.
0: What is involved in selecting and then preparing a host community to receive refugees?
1: In order to have a family, let's say, sent to... Let's say Novara in the north of Italy, you have to have somebody who welcomes them, so the work is done before to identify the place and to have a community that can welcome <laughs> so otherwise, you know we don't send we don't impose a family on anyone. It's not that you can say no, you have to accept that, not how it is done, so there is certainly a nucleus or at least a little group that can welcome, and I think that then that helps also the others that maybe more hostile or fearful. But I think that's also a difference because it's not that by working on a table and deciding on a table, you decide, okay, this two here, these two there without speaking, without interacting with the receiving community. So there is dialogue before. And so I think that's also part of the process.
0: For how long are the refugees supported and considered a participant in the project?
1: They are supported supported by family but usually they are they are independent they have you know there is their their house their their apartments whatever it is so they are not in temporary shelters i don't know if how long is the time even looking here i think we all of them as much as they need but often some also find immediately a job and uh, so it, all the integration it's a kind of personal so there is not a time or a time frame but i think so far has been pretty smooth so
0: so could you describe then the successes that this initiative has had?
1: So we have welcomed till now 1,000 refugees from Lebanon, which are Syrian and Iraqi, mostly Muslims. There are few also Syrian Orthodox Christians. There are two other pieces of the first agreement of 2015 that are taking place. One should be 500 refugees with uh, an agreement with France, with the Community of saint in France and the Protestant churches in France. And another is uh, other 500 people from actually from Ethiopia, that the community of saint with the Caritas International, uh, the Car- Italian Caritas. They are representative of the community now in the refugee camps in Ethiopia and they are trying to Bring the people out. And then just at the beginning of November, a second agreement was signed with the Italian government for another thousand refugees. So that's also say something about the program that went well. So this is really the idea to show that it works and to say, why don't you do it? You know, it's simple, it doesn't cost you anything. We do all the work. Let's have people integrating in a positive way in a personal way but also the things that I was stressing before about the welcoming I think it's really a great thing and it's very beautiful because also from the story of the people you see how a story of integration and a positive story also changed uh, other people. Also people who were more resentful or more against, let's say in a town, in a little village, people who were scared or afraid of these immigrants who come. And once they welcome one in a positive way, when they see that is, there is nothing to fear, that these are people who are good and eager to integrate, that's changed also their mind. So I think it has also a positive effect also in a larger way because it changed the mentality of people uh, from fear to welcome and appreciation.
0: Do you know, are you encountering any operational challenges or any challenges for that matter?
1: For me, I mean, I, looking at this, I'm not in Italy now, so I don't know the details of all the settlement. Not that I know to this point there is any negative A response. I think that the greatest challenge is to choose the people, it's just to make uh, 1,000 over, I don't know how many hundred and Thousands of people were in the camp. That, I think, is the toughest choice. The others is feasible. It requires the creativity of people. This is also with the other organization, with the evangelical churches and with um, the other Waldensians, that really people also want to help. It's not that there is all this negativity. Unfortunately, too often, I think the media do a bad job in the sense that they publicize only the negative aspect, only the bad images. I think that what the media do sometimes enlarges the dimensions of the problem in a negative way. So I think that this project also offers a positive approach and prove that there are possibilities of positive approaches. And also that people are happy. I mean, the fact that so many people also accepted to welcome people, this is also a great discovery. But you have to work with people, you have to speak, you have to explain. It's not that you have just dumped some people in a place like that. Then people react, they feel helpless, they don't know what to do, they don't know how to do it, and uh, they are afraid. But I think in the sense of welcoming, there are much better stories and possibilities.
0: Due to the significance of the Humanitarian Corridor Initiative, do you know, is anyone collecting data on the refugees that are being assisted through this program, particularly statistical and demographic data, for example, or how well they are faring in their new lives?
1: All the data are kept, but are confidential because obviously of privacy of individuals. These people have been settled in The last year, practically. So the first one came, I think, in January 2016. So it's a program that has been one year old, the arrival of the people. So it's very short. So certainly there is a list of all the people who arrived, their settlement, their Situation, their whereabouts and I think that the sponsor of the program the promoters of the program keep that together with the authorities how this is going to be analyzed I don't know even this data about the composition of the people it's already comes from there for who are the people who are coming probably there is also some data about the illness about uh, there is about the religion that the majority are Muslim as I said but I don't know how if there is a more systematic analysis of that success I think it's Kind of short time, maybe two, three years to see really the result. If this follows the pattern of Mozambique, that at the beginning we, the community mediated peace in Mozambique and then we studied it. Now, practically at any course on conflict resolution at the university, this mediation, particularly mediation, is taught because it was the first of the kind, it has been analyzed, it has been broken down and all this thing. So I'm imagining that something of the kind will happen also with this because I think it's really good. So I I hope that somebody will study it also in a more academic way. There are people in the project already that do the project that are also professional. They are not only volunteer and as I said also within the community, this relationship with the immigrants as a long story, there are lawyers also who are able to identify this law and how we could take advantage of the law already existing to create this program. So you have to put together some professionalities, some uh, generosity, some creativities, and put all together and make a project. And so I hope they will do it.
0: Paula, could you also speak to the importance of merging the Catholic and evangelical faiths into this ecumenical partnership?
1: The Pope praised that this initiative is exactly because it has been not only Catholic. We have a call to unity that has been, you know, a long process and sometimes it has been more academic or uh, intellectual. But this, I think there is much that Christians can do together on the ground and uh, joining forces and their unquestionable desire to help others, uh, that is a uh, commandment. <laughs> and the desire, our request comes directly from our faith. And so I think in that sense, the possibility and showing also to the world that they are Christians Together, united, who can respond to it? I think it's a great message.
0: Are there any other efforts, such as specific programs or services, that the community of Santa is carrying out in an attempt to aid or support migrants, particularly refugees?
1: The programmes of the community for refugees are very large. In, uh, in Italy, as I said, started with a School of Italian and it goes really to a full welcome of the tradition, of the cultures, of embracing that, of knowing, of studying, of acknowledging the difference, but also welcoming the difference. So it goes from, from the language, but then it's celebrating uh, the holidays together in very concrete help in doing the papers or introducing them to the world to the job market and so on. In many other countries, there is this aspect where the community is. There are the schools of language, whatever language is the one that needs to be taught. In the United States lately, just a few months ago, we started a school of English in Boston for immigrants, mostly for Hispanic immigrants. Something also that we try to to do with the integration. So something that we did especially with young immigrants in Italy and in Europe is a movement called People of Peace, which is a movement of people of different faith and background but are willing to work for peace, to volunteer for whatever needs it's requested. A lot of the immigrants also who were received by the community welcomed at the beginning by the community are now themselves doing the work. And that's uh, uh, very important. And at the same time, again, it's not putting the immigrants in a a secondary place or are only the recipient of some service, but actually also as the actors and the first, the protagonist of uh, a work of integration and welcome. So when we say we want peace, for example, in Europe and in the world, they can say it with us and it's very beautiful because there are many muslim part of it, this movement and again it's a response also to the marginalization that we see in many cities also in europe and we're also more fundamentalistic groups fish in order to find a depth so it's also a response to that kind of isolation and marginalization
0: great thank you paula so just one last question is there anything else you'd like to add any final words for our listeners
1: Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for this conversation. I I hope that it also will rise some interest and some desire to do more and to create ways in which uh, we can welcome our refugees and have them as our neighbors in our cities.
0: Paolo Piscitelli is the president of the Community of Santa Gidio USA. To learn more about the Community of Santa Gidio USA, visit www.SantegidioUSA.org That's S-A-N-T-E-G-I-D-I-O-U-S-A.org CMS's theme music is provided by Danny Duberstein and The Music Case. Special thanks to Olivia Soderini for providing assistance with the recording and transcription of this episode. To learn more about the Center for Migration Studies of New York, visit us at CMSNY.org.